and welcome to this special end-of-year episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute of Government. I'm Hannah White. So, whether you've been simply having a wonderful Christmas time or simply want to get away from the in-laws, here's the IFG's end-of-year podcast. It's the IFG review of the last 12 months in Whitehall, Westminster and beyond. And what a year it was. Three Prime Ministers, two monarchs, four chancellors, I think. Record-breaking numbers of ministerial resignations, including 28 over three days in July. Some toe-curling reality TV performances and some unlikely comebacks. And so much more besides. So join us as we take a deep breath and take a deep dive into one of the most astonishing years in British political history. Stopping along the way to pick out the IFG's highs and lows and moments to remember. Or perhaps forget. Joining me throughout are two IFG stalwarts who have seen the best and worst of government from close quarters, and that's senior fellows Jill Rutter and Giles Wilkes. Hi both. Hi Hannah. Hi Hi, Hannah. And I'm absolutely delighted that we are joined today by Jack Blanchard, UK editor of Politico. Hello. Hi Jack, it's been quite a year. It's been quite a year. We seem to have had quite a lot of quite a years, haven't we? But even by recent standards, this one's been pretty special. Let's start with the person who began the year in number 10 almost impossible to believe that 12 months ago, at the end of 2021, Boris Johnson was under pressure after losing the North Shropshire by-election and his mishandling of the Owen Paterson affair. In some ways, that was the beginning of the end for a Prime Minister dogged for much of his tenure by his intensely relaxed attitude to rules and ethics. Jack, at the start of 2022, would you have predicted that Johnson would be gone within the year? No, I don't think so. I mean, people were talking about it at the start of the year. And and I do remember having conversations with a couple of well-connected Tories about it. And and views were definitely split. We could see he was under pressure. And we could see that this Partygate inquiry, which was still in its nascent stages at that point. And there was also another inquiry into his wallpaper, I seem to remember, at the start of the year. Both of those looked like they could be pretty problematic for a prime minister, for any prime minister. But you've got to remember that Boris Johnson at that time had always been seen as this Teflon guy. He just got away with things. He laughed and he shrugged and he made a joke and nothing ever caught up with him in the end. And I have to say my instinct at the beginning of this year was that we would see the same old story again. Whatever he may or may not have done and whatever may or may not have happened in Downing Street during the COVID period, he'd probably just get away with it. And over the course of the year, Joe, we saw a number of resets in number 10, didn't we? Why couldn't he get a grip on his number 10 operation, do you think? I think it's really interesting because we had sort of very different constellations of how you run number 10. We had changes of chief of staff. We'd obviously already seen the departure of Dominic Cummings, replacement by Dan Rosenfield. Then various number 10 officials were pushed onto their swords because they were the sacrificial lambs to save the prime minister for Partygate. One of the recurrent themes was the prime minister sacrificing quite a lot of people around him so that he could uh, he could survive because it was always their fault, never quite his. Recurrent theme um, of his life, you might say. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, and then we had this very sort of odd interlude with Steve Barclay being sort of, you know, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, which, always, which always seemed a really weird sort of setup. never clear whether that really worked. Uh, very odd period. Uh, so I think you know, ultimately you have to come back to the fact that was it actually not number 10 that was the problem, but the Prime Minister who was the problem? Yeah. Actually, there was no system that could really turn Boris Johnson from someone who'd been an incredibly effective campaigner back in 2019, landed that big majority, into somebody who could sort of 
buckle up, buckle down and actually make government do what Boris Johnson wanted it to do. And I think that was where they were really struggling and why none of those sorts of iterations. We also, I mean, you've mentioned how many, it's a year of this, a year of that. I was quite taken aback when, you know, one of our uh, ex-colleagues, now it's number 10, said there'd been four principal private secretaries. That's the most senior official in Downing Street. The permanent civil service is supposed to provide a bit of stability, but we you know, lost, first of all, Martin Reynolds over parties. We then brought somebody else in from the Foreign Office. He didn't last to you know, beyond Liz Truss coming in, Liz Truss bringing her preferred private secretary from the Foreign Office in. He lasted as long as Liz Trust, so did the famous 49 days. And then Rishi Sunak went, Ini, meeny, miny, mo, you were my private secretary in the Treasury, come into number 10 with me. So this sort of idea that actually you inherit the staff and keep them uh, seems to have disappeared. It now seems to be almost a sort of personal position. And that means when you have rapid churn of prime ministers, you also get rapid churn of top staff. Um, we'll have to see whether number 10 can work under Rishi Sunak, didn't have much of a go under Liz Truss, whether, you know, a Prime Minister who prides himself on delivering can actually get an organisation that works. Uh, story so far is that number 10 are finding his change in work rate slightly more challenging and perhaps it's a slightly more hardworking regime than some of the ones we've seen earlier in the year. And Jack, I seem to remember the event which ultimately, I think, precipitated Johnson's departure, the allegations about the behaviour of Chris Pincher, when that sort of came up in the news, I think I remember sort of shrugging and thinking, oh gosh, you know, another one of these, but not really thinking much of it. But that ended up being the thing that in the end seemed to just trigger those ministerial resignations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was obviously very serious allegations made about um, the Deputy Chief Whip, um, but not something you would have thought would have brought down a Prime Minister. But it was essentially the straw that broke the camel's back for Tory MPs, wasn't it? And it was the way that he yet again dealt with this problem with the same blustering, frankly, nonsensical response mm -hmm. to it. His, yeah. his spokesman was sent out to talk to journalists and was not truthful mm -hmm. about the situation. And we'd seen this time and time again, and it was clearly obvious um, what the, the Downing Street were not being straight about what happened. But what the, the, the crucial difference in that scenario was that a very senior former official um, from within Whitehall just came out over the weekend yeah. and frankly buried the Prime Minister. And we're very rare that you would see somebody like that yeah. come in and do that. I mean, we were talking about Simon MacDonald, the yes. former Permanent Secretary of the Foreign Office. Yeah, he deserves a really honourable mention in 2022. At the beginning of the year, I thought if we were going to have names associated with the demise of Boris Johnson, if it was going to happen, it was going to be Pippa Creer and Paul Brand of ITV. There seemed to be a moment where every Saturday you'd be refreshing Twitter every few hours to see what new revelation had come out. And um, as you put it, Jack, what the Tory MPs find totally impossible to bear was the idea of being sent out into TV studios all the time to defend lines that then they found later turned out to be undermined by the next video, the next leaked WhatsApp message. And uh, as, as you say, the, the, the last allegations about Chris Pincher were just the final straw. That, that's why, actually, I thought it was really interesting on resignation letters, when you're looking at some of the, back to some of the resignation letters, like, you know, such a job as resignation, we'll remember, because he still triggered this giant wave. Uh, Rishi Sunak's resignation, sort of, you know, slightly setting out his stall to be the next Prime Minister offering serious, competent government. 
But I always thought the one that was really interesting was the junior minister who'd been on the Today programme with that hospital pass of defending Boris Johnson, just who clearly really liked his ministerial job, probably not somebody, you know, he's actually on the radio, uh, you know, just before Christmas of, I think it's probably first outing since this unfortunate episode, a guy called Will Quince, who really gave a sort of howl of despair about, you gave me these lines, they proved to be inaccurate. And now I'm going to, I just feel I have to give up this job I really, really, really like doing because I just can't bear it anymore. And I think that was actually the thing probably that we underestimated yeah. Just the sheer pain of those ministers being forced to go out and yet again lie for their boss and just see more of that coming down the line. I mean, the truth is about Johnson, the real tension that made it always so volatile as a situation. I was assured by the head of the policy unit when I was in Downing Street, he won't become prime minister because the MPs hate him. The MPs hate him and don't trust him. And the trouble is the public seem to love him. And that tension is the tension at the heart of the constitutional problem for the Tory party. They might have a leader who looks like the only thing that might be possible for a Hail Mary resurrection mm. pass for them. But the MPs can't support him. And that's why ultimately, I think when we fast forward to October, he chose not to go for it because he realised his own MPs can't bear working with him for these reasons. I, I think that's exactly right. And, but, the, but the crucial change, in fact, came over the course of the Partygate story, broken, as you said, by, by Pippa then at the Mirror and Paul Brand at ITV together. That public perception of Boris Johnson changed. And ultimately, yeah. in the end, that is what did for him. He might not believe it, but he is no longer popular. Yeah. People do not like him. You look at the polling, you look at the focus group. It changed with Partygate and it's never changed back. And once Tory MPs, who, as you say, they knew what he was like. They knew he wasn't an honest person. They knew all the problems with him. But for as long as he was someone who was popular with the public and could deliver them these big majority like he did in 2019, they were prepared to put up with it. Once they realised that had gone and they talked to their constituents and they saw the months of polling, when he then continued to undermine his position, that underlying support was gone and so they were prepared to cut him off on the knees because they saw him as someone who's going to lose them an election not win them one. And I think the real sort of beginning of the end came when he made his first statement on Sue Gray's report the 31st of January statement when he read his scripted contrition for a minute did that Keir Starmer then came in with a really quite good demolition and then he immediately resorted to his smears about Jimmy Savile and even you know and I think that was actually the even his most loyal colleagues think, you know, this is too much. We can't bring ourselves. Uh, also, <laughs> don't forget the effect of the by-elections, which I know by-elections are always extraordinary. But Tory MPs would have looked at how those absolutely impossible to lose seats were lost by a handsome margin to the Lib Dems. They've noticed that. The Prime Minister's face is only on the opposition pamphlets. <laughs> That's a bad sign that he's no longer cutting through as an electoral asset. But, Giles, I mean, if we look back now, is there anything that Johnson did get right? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've been reflecting on this. There are two things that come out in all the lines about Johnson, saying this is why he was a great person, the big calls he got right. And they are regarded as being vaccines during the COVID period and backing Zelensky and Ukraine. Now, I'm always slightly puzzled by this because I don't really understand what the big call is on vaccines. It's not like we said, well, shall we be an anti-vaccination or not? Or shall we go for it? There might have been some behind the scenes table bang saying, I don't care about the cost. Let's get out there really early. Let's cut our way through regulation. But I never really understood why that was regarded as a really difficult prime ministerial call to get right. Likewise, on Ukraine, I think 
the, the whole of the British uh, establishment seemed to be behind supporting Ukraine to the maximum. Again, maybe this is something where prime ministerial energy and visibility makes a really big difference. And, to, and you know, he by going out really early and visiting Zelensky, he might have made it really clear that this is the way to be and all his successes had to follow that way. But then trust was also very pro-Zelensky. The other one, though, in policy terms, one where wonks like me get put in an awkward position. If you now look at that 2019 manifesto, it's a big step capable state manifesto. It's saying you can do good things with the government. He didn't have all the details sorted out, as the million page of levelling up white paper from the year before made really clear. They you know, make a lot of noises about levelling up, but at some point you've got to deliver. But it is a vision of what a government can do if you put the state's money and energy and positivity behind things. But again, it, he didn't bring his party with him. A lot of his party rushed towards the Liz Trust vision, which is the opposite of all of that big state thinking. So, yeah, arguably he was in the right position there as a sort of a big state liberal conservative um, trying to get things to happen. But, he, you know, he didn't solve the political problems that follow it. But I'd say he got that right. I'll put some defence in for Boris Johnson. I think setting up the vaccine task force, taking all of that um purchasing decision out of the Department of Health, not the way Whitehall would ever operate, it was criticised at the start. The The team that was set up was criticised as being outside, spending too much on PR, and it turned out to be a masterstroke, and they obtained the vaccines faster than most other Western countries, and we got the rollout quicker, and that definitely saved lives, and, and that was a bold decision. I'm not saying Boris Johnson came up with it in his study, but he, he set up the team that did, and he approved it, and that was not the way that most Western countries did it, and I think that was definitely an important success, and I would say um, with Zelensky, you're right in that everyone supported what he was doing, but you know he put his reputation on the line by going out there, being very, very bold, and, and being very much this guy's best friend, but we didn't know then how the Ukraine war was going to pan out, how the situation with Zelensky was going to pan out. And he, he very much glued himself to Zelensky in a way that proved to be the right thing to do. And I would also think that you have to mention his success in breaking the Brexit deadlock in 2019. Whatever you think of the outcome of all of that, the political stalemate that Britain was in looked intractable. It was an awful position. And had we still been in that stalemate position when COVID hit in 2020, I think that would have been pretty disastrous for the country. So however much you like or dislike the Brexit deal he did in the end, he did do one. And we were able to move on as a country to a degree, although, of course, <laughs> there are still issues that are outstanding, <laughs> but we've, we've certainly resolved a lot of things that weren't resolved in 2019, for better or for worse. Joe, you led our Brexit work for a long uh, period. Would you say Brexit is now done? <laughs> uh, no, and I think the bit I would sort of hold against the sort of Boris Johnson Brexit uh, Brexit deal is two things. One of which is a sort of fundamental dishonesty around the Northern Ireland Protocol and its implications, which really is the sort of outstanding running saw that we still have now, the way he was very disingenuous, dishonest towards the DUP uh, and did that. And then I think the other bit is the sort of dishonesty about the consequences of Brexit in terms of that very distant deal that uh, he, he and David Frost did with the EU. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about, you know, about both Liz Truss and about what's happening recently is Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng sort of said, well, actually, we have to go full frontally out to get the benefits of the sort of Brexit Boris Johnson, David Frost gave us. We have to you know, try and do the sort of Singapore on Thames vision that sort of Philip Hammond had floated 
earlier on as what we would do if we didn't get a good deal with the EU. They went out for that and you know, ran full slap into the face of market ire by doing that and trashed the economy and the Conservatives' reputation for economic management, um, which is interesting in itself. But, you know, we now still are trying to work out what on earth we do with this deal. And I think one of the things that's really interesting and really interesting if you cast forward into 2023 is the sort of increasing disillusion about the nature of the deal that Boris yeah. Johnson, David Frost did. David Frost made a speech in February 2020, just before the pandemic hit, where he basically said, non-tariff barriers don't matter. <laughs> uh, everybody else screeched and said, they're the thing that matter in international trade these days. Tariffs are pretty irrelevant. Non-tariff barriers matter a lot. And since then, you know, the government has basically shut its ears to every complaint from business about the non-tariff barriers they now face doing business with the EU. OK, well, let's move on to the second Prime Minister of the year. <laughs> Liz Truss lasted just 49 days, which even her biggest doubters would never have dared predict. Giles, of course, though, her premiership began with perhaps the most momentous constitutional change of the year, and that was the death of the Queen. Yes, I mean, it was an extraordinary time. And the, the question of whether to have sympathy for Liz Truss is going to be one that we, we should reflect upon, because she was she won her... She won the leadership election by a, a very large margin. And also she didn't hide at all what she was or what she believed through that leadership election. And so it was a, it was a fairly good democratic choice. I was asked by a foreign radio station, how on earth did you become prime minister? She came became prime minister by the fairest method we had available. And she had every reason to feel that she'd kind of earned her position in that way. And then on the same day as she released the um, the details of an enormous energy package, which is something we which we thought would be dominating the whole of politics that autumn. The very sad news broke of the Queen being in her final moments, and she had to immediately switch into this rather daunting position of being the Prime Minister during a time of national mourning. Um, so I do think um, we should remember that this was a really difficult start for her. At the same time, she had plenty of time to prepare a, an emergency budget plenty of access to really great advice, the, all the resources of the state. And instead, on the 23rd of September, they produced the biggest self-inflicted injury on any party or government's economic competence that I can think of any developed country ever having carried out. It's quite extraordinary. You have to go to the annals of like South American politics at the worst moments in the post-war period to find anything quite so incredibly catastrophically bad as September the 23rd, unfurling in real time before us. And she, she obviously had a difficult time, but my goodness, it absolutely destroyed the policy programme of decades of the libertarian right. In, to some degree, slightly unfairly, because you could say of Liz Trust that she identified that we were approaching a real crisis point as a country, that if growth remains this low, we're going to have to have a, such a serious and unpleasant conversation with ourselves about not being able to afford the things we want and having to consign ourselves to a lesser position in the world. And she was saying, I will not put up with that. And that, in a sense, was admirable. It's just the Maoist attempt to just tear up every institution at once as the answer was... Um, quite extraordinary and we can be thankful in a way that there are some very serious-minded guilt trades as you said you're not going to get away with this within a few weeks it was over 
as you say, I mean, she, she absolutely had to announce that energy package. She didn't actually have to do the emergency budget in the no. way that she did. I mean, as you say, she she had some time to prepare it, but it wasn't actually did, need to be that quick. And nor did she have to go from being I'm I'm not a believer in handouts to the most monumentally massive handout that even her own favourite think tank was condemning as being ridiculous. She could have said, "We just need a holding motion here." And um, instead, they announced something absolutely massive and then larded on top of it the most phenomenal series of tax cuts. Lunacy. Let me make the case for Liz Truss, because I'm sure no one else is going to, um, in, a, in a minor way anyway. First of all, incredibly unlucky to have such a monumental thing happen two days into your premiership on the very day you're announcing this enormous, what should have been incredibly popular public spending package to save us all from uh, energy inflation for the next couple of years. And it barely got mentioned in the papers. And this historic thing happens at the very time you're trying to set people's uh, view of you as a new prime minister. Most people won't even know who Liz Truss was outside of, you know, this square mile around here uh, before she became prime minister. Uh, suddenly you have to go quiet for two weeks while everyone talks about something completely different. That's incredibly hard. Um, doesn't excuse what happened, but it's very unlucky. Um, and then secondly, with the emergency budget itself, I mean, I'm slightly mystified as to the reaction, not from an economic point of view. I'm not an economist and I don't know I wouldn't profess to say whether tax cuts are a good or a bad idea, but she talked an all summer telling us what she was going to do. She was completely upfront of it, about it. She was on telly every night telling Rishi Sunak was going to do. Rishi Sunak was telling us it was a bad idea. We all knew, the markets knew, the guilt traders knew. It shouldn't have been such a big surprise when they unveiled that package of doing what she said she was going to do. And so I think also she could consider herself to be unlucky that the markets reacted in such an extreme way to something that frankly should have been baked in for weeks and months and they might have been excused for believing that it had been and for for the markets suddenly go what she's announcing massive tax cuts well yeah did you not switch on the tv and see any of these debates so i and so i think there is two points there where she, she could herself to be unlucky third thing i say about this choice is i think she dealt with her own departure with far more dignity than we've seen from other prime ministers recently who've been felt like they've been dragged out by their fingertips. They've been crying in the street. She stood up. She realised the writing was on the wall. She'd made a complete hash of it. She came out and she said, OK, it's over. Goodbye. And she walked out and we haven't heard anything mm. from her since. And I think she deserves significant credit for that, for what must have been a truly crushing personal experience. Well, I'm going to put a counter view because actually I thought the National Morning helped her uh, because I thought she actually did that quite well. And it was sort of quite a unifying moment for someone who had come in to be the face and actually... I have to say throughout that, I kept thinking, at least it's not Boris Johnson doing all this national. And you could imagine it being all about Boris Johnson, whereas Liz Truss, I thought, did it in a quite an appropriate and dignified yeah. way, even if Australian TV couldn't identify who she was when she <laughs> turned up at Westminster Abbey. But, you know, but I thought she did that quite nicely. But I think the problem with Liz Truss is she was so determined to not listen to anyone who mm. might have a single doubt about her programme. I mean, the decision... On day one, to get rid of Tom Scholar, I think, you know, I mean, he's an official, he would have done, you know, he could have resigned over it if he wanted to. But the decision, we're not even going to give you a chance to give us any advice. I think uh, probably out of a personal grudge from her time as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as far as we can see, I think was a big error. 
they knew that their numbers didn't add up because that was why they could never have a forecast from the Office for Budget Responsibility because yeah. they knew it would show a ginormous hole in the public finances because they knew that the OBR was never going to buy into some massive Laffer curvy effect that their tax cuts were going to pay for themselves in space and stuff like that. And the bit people didn't know when they were talking about things they might do on tax, you know, reversing the uh, health and social care levy, the bit they didn't know was the scale of that energy handout. And what was really interesting was after the emergency budget, the thing ministers kept on going back to was, well, we had to do this massive energy bailout. Yeah. Yeah, remember that? I mean, because they'd managed to overshadow that by not by the death of the Queen, but by their bat mini budget, which, as Giles said, they could have waited till November, done a budget in sort of normal time. None of their changes were actually, you know, with the exception of stamp duty, taking immediate effects so, and the, uh, persuading the national insurance thing. But they could have actually just waited yeah. and done that later and done it in real time and taken a bit of advice. But it was the determination that we have to show we are a completely different sort of of government, we're tearing up all these abacus economists, these boring people who think things have to add up. We're actually not going to do that. And so I think, you know, I yeah, think I mean, that was what I find interesting is often you hear a frustrating thing that I'm sure Jack is aware of as an experienced political correspondent that the public face of the politician doesn't tell the voters what they really like. And so you have all these interesting stories saying, oh, they may seem absolutely mad on the uh, <laughs> on the Mars sofa, but they're actually really brilliant at dealing with their officials. And this, I mean, like, for example, you hear this about Jacob V. Smog, for example. That it, actually he was quite a careful and diligent person at times when he was dealing with officials. With Liz Truss, what was fascinating is you saw in public what everyone complained about in private, which was you, she would not hear advice. She would absolutely blank you if you were disagreeing with her. And that was what brought her down. So in a sense, the whole system worked. Her beautiful sort of visibility was, was shown to everyone and the markets. And they went, oh, my goodness, she actually meant it. And that's why, why I think the markets reacted that way. Although I do accept what you say there, Jack, the extra 15 billion of tax cuts, nobody would have got out a piece of paper and say, well, at 30 billion tax cuts, we're fine. At 15, we're doomed. It just doesn't make sense. You can understand that any treasury analysis that had tried to predict that would have looked really speculative. Exactly. And I think also, you know, the, the idea of, well, they could never have got away with this. Jeremy Hunt essentially did get away with this a few weeks later mm. when he came in with his budget, which was supposed to be full of massive cuts mm. because even reversing yeah. the trust stuff, we were now in a position where we had this big black hole. And he just magicked it away by saying, oh, we'll make those cuts in a few years. Yeah. And the markets went, yeah, that's fine. Well, that's not fair. Is it? That's <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was completely the opposite reaction to what happened to Liz Trust, essentially because they saw Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak as their kind of people who they could trust. Now, I'm not saying whether that judgment's right or wrong, but you could see it as being unfair or at least unlucky for Liz Truss. And yeah. Jill, in the end, though, her short tenure, in a, in a curious way, ended up being relatively good for the idea that, you know, institutions are important, that the basic principles of good governance do really matter. Yeah, well, it's sort of, you know, you know, economic orthodoxy strikes back and the institutions yeah. now look stronger. I mean, we know that as Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, uh, you know, didn't particularly like having to submit to the OBR, sort of grating at it a bit. Um, but now the OBR is in a stronger position than ever, arguably slightly too strong a position, really, because, you know, they are, as people would point out, unelected and in a sense sort of Unaccountable, they do have to show their workings and they're exposed like that. Um, the Bank of England 
is in a stronger position because it's perceived that the Bank of England sort of, you know, held the government's fate in its hands. So now you have to tread much more carefully at what Andrew Bailey might think. And, you know, the Treasury, very bizarrely, you get rid of Tom Scholar and then you replace him with the official across Whitehall who looks most like Tom Scholar, not physically, but, you know, looks most like Tom Scholar. The one downside of James is that he doesn't have the same experience as Tom Scholar, the experience of managing through the 2008-9 crisis, the knowledge of the markets, the sort of links of contacts from having been mm. uh, the UK's executive director of the IMF. So basically you've traded in one Tom Scholar, who undoubtedly the taxpayers now in for some mega payoff too, I assume. We'll discover that when we see the Treasury accounts in a few years' time. Um uh, past go gates peerage or whatever they end up doing for him but you get that and so you basically get a replicant toms because their idea that they were going to make a really bold appointment of a very different sort of treasury permanent secretary was something they had to sacrifice when they were reigning in and you turning all over the place so you know we heard that it was going to be someone who take on the treasury shake it up and whatever and we've got the most conservative set of appointments at the top of the treasury but just with a lot less experience i think jill's right that all those like classic institutions have been strengthened and interesting, the group that's been completely weakened by the Liz Truss experience, as was sort of uh, suggested earlier, is this sort of Tory libertarian right movement, which frankly had been having a hell of a few years, hadn't it? It started in, in the sort of early 2010s as this sort of little fringe mm-hmm. thing on the edge of conservative politics and really took over the party and, and, and triggered the revolution in 2016 of Brexit. And, and with Liz Truss appeared to have hit its high watermark of actually implementing finally this big economic plan that it had been planning and plotting and discussing for the decade or more. And the whole thing just fell apart in a few weeks. And, and the idea that a group with that kind of idea is going to get its hand on the policy levers again anytime soon looks pretty far-fetched, given what happened. And that takes us rather neatly on to the third Prime Minister of the year. Um, Jack, do you think Rishi Sunak looks like he is managing to pick up the pieces after the trust meltdown, or has the damage she's done uh, particularly to the Tory poll ratings, um, made that pretty much impossible. That is the million-dollar question that we're going to be asking over the next 18 months, isn't it? Uh, I'm not going to make a prediction, but he's certainly steadied the ship. There's no question about that. Britain no longer feels has this perpetual sense of crisis about it, although it's a shame for him that nothing actually works and none of the public services now function properly anymore, but that's a separate issue that he is going to have to deal with in the new year. Um, But, you know, the, the political, the sense of political drama and crisis around Westminster has gone almost overnight with uh, Sunak's arrival um, and I think that was that was a very important first step uh, we no longer feel like we're in the midst of an economic crisis beyond the big inflationary issues that we've obviously got and potential recession um, whether he can tra- take the next step which is to start to consolidate conservative support what he needs to do frankly is get that poll lead for Labour right down and if he can transform what is currently something like a 20 odd point poll lead into maybe a more reachable 8 to 10 point poll lead over the next few months if he can shift that sort of level of public opinion 
all the mood music will change. Suddenly Tory MPs will start to have a spring in their step. They'll start to believe that there is a chance that you can turn this attack around in time for the election and you will see Labour MPs starting to sweat and they will start to mutter about their own leader who's clearly hasn't quote-unquote sealed the deal with voters. Nobody's that excited about Keir Starmer, um, it's fair to say, out, out in the country. So I think it's possible that Rishi Sunak could do that. If he can, if he can start to get some improvement in the economic situation next year, if he can start to resolve some of this issue with public service striking that may be linked to inflation, then yes, I think it, it can be done. But I think the odds are at the moment that he will lead them to an honourable defeat. But I'm not going to make a prediction on that because British politics is pretty That sounded very much like a prediction. Yeah, yeah. Are, I would say that is where the proportional chances are at the moment. But I wouldn't rule anything out because it's a long time yet until the election and we've seen how volatile things can be. I mean, we're talking about the year in view. Who could have predicted how 2022 yeah. Giles, I mean, what do you make of uh, how he's starting to approach getting on top of the cost of living crisis and particularly the strikes? They're really going to have a massive impact on the start of 2023. Well, I think, you know, I think Rishi Sunak is almost like the platonic ideal of the kind of prime minister that might have happened. Actually, ironically enough, if Brexit hadn't happened, which he supported, he was the sort of successor to George Osborne that George Osborne might have wanted. Decent, centre-right, incredibly interested in the evidence, very nice to his team. He's the sort of people that, um, the sort of person that the, the Treasury officials love working with, the policy unit now feels like a much happier place that is allowed to think about policy, <laughs> that has a prime minister who apparently will spend 40 minutes on the phone asking about the details of an upcoming bill. So he's got all of those technical abilities. And the only minor problem he might face is, is politics might be entirely wrong for the current situation that, you know, he will be absolutely on top of all of the different public sector pay agreements that are going on, which ones are fair, how to compare them and everything. He might just miss the big picture that he needs a big, bold political offer to get this off the table and move forward. Um, and, and that's going to be a real problem, because if all of these sort of nagging concerns about the cost of living carry on through all of 2023, and a lot of them will be so inevitably because of the way energy costs mm last and the inflationary moments last a long time if that is still the mood music out there in the economy people will just be looking at their diminished fortunes their the record low hit we're having to the real household incomes which we haven't seen since the second world war you'd have to go back to arguably the worst of rationing the kind of cost of living crisis that we're facing if that is still the mood music it doesn't really matter that he will be a much more competent and decent and reasonable person mm -hmm seemingly capable of speaking many more truths to the public, people will just think, it's grim here, and we need something to change. And what can we change? We can change the government. So I think, um, like Jack in his non-prediction, I think he's <laughs> going to struggle to get to one of those poll leads where it feels like you might be in it with a shot being the next government. And that feeds upon the behaviour of MPs and their loyalty to the government, whether they announce their resignations. And, and, and so the momentum carries on going away from them. And I think that's still got to be the betting certainty. Of course, the other person at the centre of all this is going to be Jeremy Hunt, beaten by Boris Johnson in the 2019 leadership race, who came back as Liz Truss's second chancellor and was then retained by Sunak. Do you think, Jack, that was the comeback of the year? Someone someone referred to them as the coalition of all the losers to me the other day in this government. They both lost Tory leadership elections uh, in recent memory. Come back to the year. I mean, certainly few people would have predicted Jeremy Hunt uh, in such a senior uh, senior position. But honestly, for me, the comeback of the year 
I mean, it's Rishi Sunak. I mean, who gets tonked in a leadership contest like that? You know, we were expecting to be out of Parliament in a matter of weeks, potentially, off to Silicon Valley for some big job with some tech firm or something like that. We were already writing his political obituary. And a few weeks later, I mean, who could have thought that the Tory MPs would just coalesce around one candidate, throw out the, uh, the, the, the wildly popular choice of the members and install Rishi Sunak. I mean, you know, I remember talking to members of his team um, during the Trust Premiership. They were planning long holidays and talking about their next career moves. It certainly wasn't going to be in Whitehall or in government or even in politics. You know, they'd obviously given up, as I'm sure had Rishi Sunak. No one could have thought, even Liz Truss's worst enemy, I mean, I definitely thought she was going to implode at some point because she seemed like that type of person, but I never dreamed of doing it. You already had the Dominic Cummings prediction that was why Boris Johnson backed her as well, I think, in one of the predictions of the year. But even for Boris Johnson, it came too soon. I mean, he wasn't ready, was he? He was typically on holiday and and completely (laughs) unprepared for uh, for the leadership crisis that came. Charles, you were arguing earlier that comeback of the year should be uh, an award to Michael Gove. Well, yes, if you think about the number of times politicians try to finish off Michael Gove, mm-hmm. I think he, he one, of, one of the many memoirs um, he might produce himself or biographies needs to have the word Rasputin in there because they like they, they try to murder him as hard as they can and he comes straight back. Um, I mean, I must admit, one of the, the way Boris Johnson was determined to fire him just before he knew the end was over because he was so determined to try to kill him off was one of the less edifying moments of his premiership. And I, and I actually cheered that Michael Gove did return because he was, he, the reason he survives is he is generally regarded as an extremely capable Secretary of State. In my, day, in the, in my days in Downing Street, the, the instruction, can you find people to be more like Michael Gove, went around quite a lot because he was such an effective um, Secretary of State at DEFRA. So, yeah, I think he, he deserves it. So does Sweller Browderman. To be fair, I mean, talk about, in six days. talk about parlaying a very small amount of political capital and absolutely no administrative reputation whatsoever into a position of sort of essential, um, essential political um, strength is, is absolutely incredible. Indeed. And uh, Jill, you were wanting to give an award for the uh, defensive parliamentary line of the year. Uh, yes. Well, this is uh, I thought that there were many, many top parliamentary moments. But I have to say my personal standout was in that bizarre last days of Liz Truss, which very similar to the first days of Liz Truss because she was there so little time. But when Labour put down a motion, she didn't turn up, even though she had to be in the Commons um, half an hour later for Jeremy Hunt's uh, reversal of the mini budget statement. Um was when she sent out Penny Mordaunt to bat for her. A quite dangerous tactic, because obviously she'd beaten Penny Mordaunt. She was the one that the MPs put into the final two, just edging out Penny Mordaunt. Penny Mordaunt used it to say, basically, guys, this is what you could have had, and then came out with my favourite line, which was, the Prime Minister is not under a desk. Actually, I'm not sure how Penny Mordaunt actually knew, because she didn't, you know, kept saying she didn't really know where the Prime Minister was, and she might have been guilty of misleading Parliament, yeah. and might have had to have another Privileges Committee <laughs> investigation into that if it turned out that this trust actually was under a desk. But I thought that was just such a great sort of summing up mm-hmm. of the last day's of Liz Truss. So as Jack said, I think, yeah, it was quite a sort of dignified exit in the end because she didn't do the sort of Boris Johnson hanging on desperately in there. I, I, if we're going to do defences of the year, although it wasn't in Parliament, it would be a, a remiss not to mention Connor Burns in a TV interview defending uh, the Prime Minister's 
birthday party by saying he was ambushed by cake, <laughs> which I think will go down in the annals of history as one of the great political defences. It will indeed. And Giles, we've been focused very much on the politics today, but perhaps even more significant uh, than anything that we've been discussing is the change we've seen in the economic situation over the course of the year. Yes, it is extraordinary. I mean, I, I mean part of my job is to make little predictions about the next three months and try to describe what the tone of things are there. And for the last 24 months, 36 months, has always been now we're leaving COVID, we can look forward to a return to normal economics and, and growth and and so forth. And at the beginning of this year, we, we thought perhaps we'll have a little rise in interest rates, this inflationary bump will go away. There's, there was such a thing in the financial markets as team transitory. Instead, we've seen a really, really sharp bend in a curve that bent downwards around the early 80s, which was that um, in, inflation was beaten, interest rates were falling. They fell so far that people were selling 50-year bonds with a negative yield at some point in the last few years. And to now return to this period where interest rates shoot up from around July onwards to, um, to a degree that we weren't predicting at all, this is going to change everything. It changes the, the most important variable in every assessment of investment. What could I get if I was just lending risk-free to the government? That is the most important variable. And that variable has gone from 1% or 2% to 5 or 6% in some places in a matter of a few months. And we are yet to see the full level of imp- all of the implications of this. One of them, in a sense, some of the most entertaining, is that all of the ridiculous scams and unviable schemes and basic sort of con investments that happen when money is very plentiful get exposed in a really rapid um, way. I mean, the most extreme example of this, I think, from the last few months is the collapse of this crypto exchange, FTX, which of the many different sort of bubble stories we're going to be reading about in the years ahead, Greens Hill, the, the craziness of the GameStop meme um, stock phenomenon, FTX is going to be something that's going to obsess us for a long time, that a man could become worth £30 billion in a matter of a couple of years and then lose it all in a matter of weeks. But quite an extraordinary time, and it's going to take a long while to digest the implications of interest rates returning to, and I'm doing air quotes now, normal levels, because it, it will have effects throughout all of policy. Well, that gives us something to think about for the coming year, indeed years. Jill, can you give us a prediction uh, for 2023, something to look forward to? Well, the thing I'm really looking forward to is, of course, uh, Baz Ball meets the ashes in the summer, which is clearly going to be an interesting thing. And I think there are going to be lots of articles written about lessons of leadership from the way in which uh, Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum have transformed the fortunes of the England team, but uh, possibly not that. I think the really interesting thing, one of the really interesting things is, I think, you know, does Rishi Sunak actually have a strategy for dealing with all of these strikes. At the moment, there doesn't seem to be any real strategy out of government. So will they still be going on? Do they really think they can face down the nurses and the ambulance drivers all winter? Is that really where they are? So I think there's a really interesting thing, because I'm not sure that the government has gone through a mindset shift of being in an inflationary environment, because actually Rishi Sunak is so ludicrously young that, he was born after the winter of discontent. He won't remember any time when you really had to fuss that much about inflation. So I think that's really, really interesting. I think the other thing that's quite interesting to see is where does he go with the EU? Um, you know, we keep on being told that there is going to be some solution on Northern Ireland that, you know, we've had this sort of better mood music reset, but can he really do a deal? I think the big 
can he really do a deal and can he get it through his party? Because I think the big question mark about Rishi Sunak is, you know, God, he would be a great Treasury official. But actually, can he do politics and can he do that sort of thing where you need to be a bit instinctive, actually, as Giles was saying, able to leap beyond the sort of you know, policy technocratic detail, technocratic detail and actually do a big political move? And I'm not sure. I think that's a big question mark over Rishi Sunak that we might find out during the coming year. Jack, what's your prediction for next year? Um, well, as I said, I would never make any predictions because I'm always wrong. Um, but I, I mean, without wanting to fudge it too much, the, the most important thing to watch out for is the great unknowns. I mean, you know, I did a podcast this time last year trying to predict what would happen in 2022 and uh, failed to mention the worrying buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border, um, which, of course, has just changed the world. Uh, what happened in, in February, uh, we're talking about the economic implications of it now, but of course, huge military geopolitical uh, civilian implications in Eastern Europe, um, immigration implications, all the rest of it. Big events um, could be looming. Where is the war going to go next? What does an, a new explosion of COVID in China mean for the, the world economy or indeed for the world's public health situation? China and Taiwan is in a potential flashpoint. Um, but there are so many things that can just catch you completely blindsided if you're a government that is desperately trying to stabilise a situation, just saying, right, I'm the calm guy in charge that's going to normalise everything. And as I said before, Rishi Sunak has done a reasonably good job um, of that so far, notwithstanding his failure to address the public strikes that Joe was just talking about. But you can get completely taken out by, by world events when you're Prime Minister, and I would not be surprised to see something major like that blowing him off course. Thanks very much, Jack. <laughs> just what we want to hear. Giles, how about you? Well, in terms of what I would like to see, I mean, to, to sound painfully earnest for a while, I would love it if the year 2023 sees Ukraine finally repel the Russian troops from its lands. And, you know, and the fact of that being an absolutely failed uh, venture strike through to the Russian people. I mean, which is, it sounds ludicrously optimistic to predict it, but boy, if you were sitting here doing this podcast at the end of February and you predicted how well Ukraine has done, um, no, people would have thought you were absolutely mad. The conventional wisdom was that Russia was going to roll over them. And, and, I, and I do think, I don't think it's something that is, is the credit of any particular Western leader, but the West's military superiority and economic superiority in this area, its ability hopefully to outproduce the Russian war machine, um, I regard as a really important piece of good news, and I think they need to keep delivering on that. And that will actually um, be good news for world geopolitics if it's understood that you cannot dominate another country with force of arms like this when the West is on the other side of the table. If, if that is established as a fact from all of this, despite the horrendous human costs of what has happened in 2022, that will be an important positive moment for world history. That's what I'm hoping is going to happen next year. Can I add one to Jack's, which I think is to watch, is what happens in China, where yeah. China is looking very strange at the moment with the impact of ending zero oh, COVID yes. and that China is so big that could destabilise a lot of things which are already looking a bit precarious. That's one we will all be keeping an eye on. And that's it for this special edition of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Giles Wilkes, Jill Rutter and especially to Jack Blanchard. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Please do subscribe and leave us an end of year review if you feel like it. The weekly podcast is back in the new year.
So until then, head to our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find details of a very exciting day of IFG events in January. Uh, we'll be having our inaugural annual IFG conference uh, with a fantastic line-up of speakers. Enjoy the rest of the festive break, and let's all hope the next year is a little less crazy than this one.